Hello, and welcome to another episode of Reading Across the Curriculum, a book talk series on our Changemaker Conversations in Education podcast channel of the Alberta Regional Professional Development Consortia, or ARPDC. Once again, I'm Rick Gilson, Executive Director of the Southern Alberta Regional Office, and my co-host in the series is Charlie Craig of the Learning Network Educational Services Regional Office of ARPDC. As we begin today, uh, we are joined by Naval Karuni. And uh, before we introduce Naval, I, we want to acknowledge that we're coming to you from Alberta. And I live in southern Alberta, which is the Treaty 7 territory, uh, the land of the uh, Blackfoot Confederacy, Kainai, uh, Siksika, Satina uh, tribes, and uh, that we are greatly blessed to walk this land with those who have come before us, to learn from our elders, and to share that learning as much as we can with the rising generation and develop a greater understanding and respect and empathy for all the rich blessings that we have uh, in drawing on the heritage of the people uh, and contributing to that as we grow through our path and our learning. Charlie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Um, I always like to think of, of maintaining a connection to the land. Um, and as I was walking my son to the bus this morning, we've had this lovely fog roll in. And while spring is like, it's coming, uh, it's not arrived. And there is some beautiful frost crystals hanging off of the branches of all of the trees. And um, just being really mindful of slowing down enough to acknowledge that that gift of beauty. Um, because I think particularly at this point in the year in Alberta, we just want to get on with it already and um, sometimes forget about that that gift of the land and, and that reminder to function in the pace that you're meant to function in. Um, and, and that's okay. Beautiful. How about you? Introduce our guest. I would love to introduce our guest. Today we are excited to welcome Naval Karuni with us. And I had the privilege of working with Naval last year on a team of what I think are some pretty big names in literacy education. I felt like I was hanging out with some seriously famous people. I still am unsure how I ended up in that space. But nonetheless, um, we were looking at how to stretch our understanding of literacy beyond pen and paper print type tasks. Um, and Naval was just this wonderful gift to the group. Uh, she's an educator and writer who works in learning spaces to support a holistic model of literacy instruction. She works with teachers and school leaders to grow a love of reading and composition in ways that exalt the whole child, their cultural capital and their intrinsic curiosities. She is the proud daughter of immigrants and mothering her four young kids shapes her understanding of teaching and learning. In her daily literacy coaching and school-based support, Naval draws on her years as a middle grades classroom teacher and a professional writer, as well as her love of photography and connection to nature. Naval's a former international newspaper reporter, writes educator guides for kidlit books she believes in, is a contributing writer for We Need Diverse Books, and is the founder and lead consultant of NQC Literacy. Her first book is forthcoming with Steinhouse on caregiver literacy. In summary, she is an amazing human. And I'm just really excited she's joining us today. So welcome, mm -hmm. Naval. Thank you so much for that gorgeous introduction and the land acknowledgements and all these beautiful connections to nature. I don't know that I've been invited to such like a beautiful start of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we try. We, we do very much appreciate your time. I, I wonder if today you could start off by sharing with us what you are currently reading and what you like to share with teachers, parents and leaders in education. Oh, two huge questions. Because... Uh, apologies. <laughs> okay, the first one, what I'm currently reading. Actually, I like to joke that I'm in a bad mood if I'm not in a good story um, because I, I don't watch TV, not for any reason other than I just, I, I never like got into the habit of it. I just, I read stories the way I think um, 
as my escape, as my way to learn, as my everything. So I was traveling to LA last week for work um, on my family literacy engagement series with LA and Orange County Schools. And on my way back, I finished the latest book by Akwemi Emezi. You made a fool of death with, with your beauty. It was their latest book around, um, it's romantic and spicy and has lots of different kind of just intimacy scenes that I think we tend to shy away from uh, sometimes and it was beautiful. And so I finished that and I picked up True Biz, which is a book um, by a deaf author who, um, who explores kind of the world and politics around cochlear implants um, and American Sign Language for young kids and how their parents impose uh, these different ways of language based on their own hearing or non-hearing needs. It is fascinating because I've not read about the deaf world. It's a fictional book, but it is written by a deaf author. At least she, she lost her hearing, I think, late in life. Um, and it's just a whole world that I just never thought about when we're talking about accessibility, you know, for kids. Um, so that's called True Biz. Whoa, those were two different titles. Now, the, the first title, could you, you say the title again for us? So the book is written by Akwemi Akweki Amezi. And the title is You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty. Oh, they are a Nigerian fiction writer um, who wrote for young kids, Freshwater, and also Pet, um, and also for adults, The Death of Vivek Oji, all of, all of which I read. Um, but what is really interesting to me is they don't shy away from different genres, writing different genres. Hmm. And so here's a book that, you know, as a page turner, I was looking for something that I wouldn't want to put down, and I really didn't want to. And the target audience for this book you just finished? Adults, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Adults, for sure. I, I, I thought that might be the case when you were suggesting there are a few intimate passages. I wouldn't say a few, Rick. I would say a lot of the book is quite <laughs> and it Love is, it. And it is awesome. Okay. <laughs> it is awesome. I have to say that participating in these uh, podcasts are um, very challenging for my bank account at times because I never don't leave with things in my to be read pile. And now I've just added, you know, two more. Um, I obviously I had sent to you, um, not obviously, I had sent to you via Twitter the suggestion um, for Catherine Hernandez's newest book, uh, The Story of Us. Um, and I sure hope that you get a chance to read that because I, I think you would really enjoy it. And I've been telling lots of people about it simply because I need someone to talk to about it. I would love to read it. I have to tell you, I, um, I do a very good job of reading across those genres. Um, I like push myself. If I have just read a nonfiction book, I really want to read fiction next. If I have read historical fiction, like I really push myself. I also, I don't read blurbs. So I don't know what the books are about before I read them because I think they give too much away. I read just, I want to know about the author. I read the acknowledgements before I read the text because I want to know what the author was experiencing as they read the book. And I think that's so important for me as a writer myself. If you knew what I was experiencing, your understanding of my text and my book and the sh things that I share would be so much more rich. I think the acknowledgements parts of a book is like that unsung, like icing on the cake. Like mm. the, the, the fact that people don't read it kind of blows my mind because mm. um, there's some really beautiful nuggets that live in the acknowledgement section. You know, when I read, I'm sorry, Rick. Well, uh, <laughs> I've, I have read that you should start with that and, and find myself thinking, uh, you know, understanding where people are coming from. And you mentioned True Biz. I have, I have not read anything about the deaf world. And, but as you were describing it, I was like, if I was putting together a high school unit around something in this area, 
Might I read True Biz and watch Coda for background knowledge and further enrichment and things, you know, sounds 100%. And I just went to a conference, a one day conference called the Conference for Human Connection, the Educator Conference for Human Connection. It was on, it was just this past weekend. And we had a deaf um, keynote speaker for the lunch zoom in from california and i had also never experienced american sign language translation happening at the same time but the whole presentation was about what kinds of accommodations we can make for students who have hearing loss and they explained a very quick synopsis of the types of hearing loss that you're either born with or that you that happen as you uh, you know in life um and how and how kids can be accommodated accordingly where there's places of frustration this is a woman who has mother of four kids she is the only one in her family who's non-hearing everybody else is hearing right and so there's all kinds of there's generational deafness there's capital d deafness like you're born with being deaf versus lowercase d deafness and the politics around that it's it's super fascinating if you're thinking about accessibility and able ableist language and the ways that we make accommodations for kids yeah towards the end of my teaching career i think i might have already slid into vice principal and it was teaching i had a full semester in a social studies class with a student who had a signer and was significantly impacted probably could hear maybe 10 percent so everything was signed and learning to work with that uh, signer and, and ensure that, and I'm a little bit of an abstract random teacher, like I'm an abstract random rabbit chaser in conversation. Um, <laughs> Charlie's nodding for the non-viewing audience. Um, but I, I had to be more prepared in fairness to the translator. Uh, you, you know, you had to make sure that they had the vocabulary in advance um, in order to ensure that that student had the same learning opportunity as learn, learning experience. A little bit different direction maybe than we had thought, but beautiful. I'm very curious about that book. Yeah. Thank you. I recently read a book where the acknowledgements were in the beginning of the book. Yeah. Like I didn't have to go to the end of the book to find it. And I actually thought I like because it was an ebook. I thought I'd like skipped to the wrong part of the book. Um, and I was like, that I like that. That's clever. It's a good place to put it. I love that. When I read Isabel Wilkerson's cast, the book cast, mm -hmm. and I read the acknowledgments and learned that she had lost her closest family members in the writing and the researching of that book, her, her parents and her husband, if I'm not mistaken. It changed my perception even of the book like think about what she was experiencing all of that and you know just to get through it I don't know it puts me in a totally different place so mm -hmm. I read acknowledgments first love it tell us a little bit about NQC literacy and how it came to be and the work that you do within your organization thank you for that um, I was a classroom teacher for many years this is after I was a newspaper reporter um, and became a literacy coach when I had my, my first, my second kid. Um, and as I continued to have children of my own, I started to do professional development at multiple schools in Chicago public schools, all around a more holistic approach. So eliminating a textbook approach and a fill in the blank approach and thinking about task authenticity, thinking about the places where kids could bring real life learning, um, to the classroom and we could be teaching in a real life learning kind of um, mode. And so um, as, as kind of my work expanded, there were, there were teachers who I coached in these schools who were fantastic, amazing mothers also who needed, um, who needed their expertise to be shared. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to amplify their voices as well. And so I brought on some team members and we continued to do that work in about over 30 schools in Chicago. Um, everything from foundational literacy skills to um, supporting interactive read-alouds to supporting amazing classroom library build-outs to you know, all useful and practical ways to bring curriculum to life. Um, and you work like across the United States at this point, right? You are like jet setting and spreading literacy as you go. 
<laughs> that makes me sound very, like that. <laughs> sound very fancy. As my work, are, um, <laughs> as my work has grown around family engagement and family literacy experiences, where I kind of run these lab sites with schools and with families to bring um, to bring caregivers into our classrooms to see the kind of literacy learning that we do, and vice versa to op to offer opportunities for families to kind of just exalt what they're already doing at home when it comes to literacy. Um, yeah, my work has expanded to LA and Orange County and um, and yeah, some some places in New York and New Jersey where I live now. We need to know a little bit more. We need to know a lot more. <laughs> I was gonna say, we need to know a lot more. Um, I, I had shared in an email response here that uh, when I, I have six kids, uh, they're all grown now. I'm quite old. I'm much closer to ninety than thirty. And uh, you're you're familiar with one of them a little bit in Brent, my second son, um, in storytelling and and reading and those sorts of things were pretty important in my home. But your work here in terms of looping families into the into the work. Um, you know, the magic isn't all held in the hands of the kindergarten, grade one, grade two teachers for learning how to read. The magic isn't all held in the English language arts teacher through all of the grades all the way through. And I am a high school English teacher and social studies teacher. Magic's not held in, in the teacher. Uh, I, I'm, I want to know more about this idea of a shared literacy and it resonates with me that as I separated by distance from my grandchildren, I started recording little, you know, this, I am, or the dot by Peter Reynolds as read by grandpa for his grandchildren, um, you know, and putting those up on YouTube for my daughters to play for my grandchildren or for them to play for themselves as they got older. I don't know if that, I hope that makes a difference, but I'm, I want to hear more. And I think, Hope our listeners want to hear more about this looping and connecting of the families. So the premise um, is exactly what you said, just that every family is contributing in the ways that they know how and have been forever, um, regardless of language, regardless of their own experience with formal education. So you and in your home, right? Uh, reading was important to you. Maybe books were important to you. There are there are all other kinds of ways to exalt language and literacy from making recipes together to um, telling stories about where folks used to live, to taking walks and having conversations about what they observe, to watching TV together and stopping and pausing and asking what they think about it, right? There are all these things that kind of caregivers naturally do with their kids. And they look a bunch of different ways, right? Based on where folks are coming from. And I think as educators, we tend to have like our own biases around what families should look like, act like, and sound like based on our own experience and based on our own kind of socialized norm of what we expect a family to look like, like, and what we expect, um, you know, families who are like very engaged um, to be. And so a family, you know, a, a school might not understand or know that my mom wanted to be engaged, but these were the barriers that kept her back or that she was engaged in a bunch of different ways that family literacy can look like it's happening at home, but you don't see it. And so in my book, every chapter kind of starts with, um, with a strong family literacy practice, something that's happening already in the home, whether it's connected to talk or problem solving or process um, or observation skills, observational literacy skills. And, and talks about how we can bring that into the classroom to elevate instructional promise. So to boost the confidence of kids, to show them that this work is already happening at home, to communicate back with families how you're already doing this with a little more intentionality, you can support the work we're doing in the classroom because this is important to us too as literacy educators so that it's more of a cyclical round reach approach as opposed to the traditional model, which is, hey, families, do this because this is what will help us as teachers. We hold the power. We know what's best for literacy. You have to do this. Come here at this time. If you don't come to that literacy night, guess you're not engaged, right? It's so true, right? Like how many conversations happen 
in the kitchen with, you know, making muffins or in the garden or, um, changing a tire, right in the car for the umpteenth time driving to the 12th activity of the week. Um, but having conversations about what we see and what we wonder and goofy songs we're listening to. And it's important. About navigating grief experiences, navigating the death of a loved one, what those conversations sound like and look like, what those rituals sound like, what those traditions mean for literacy. You're building literacy skills and families are doing that already. And so if we take those conversations and we take those skills and we say, families, listen, you should have the confidence because you're already doing this in every language, in every different setting. You're already doing this. Here's what we are doing in the classroom. I'm going to communicate it to you. And here's how there's a bridge between our work. I really think of it as um, instructional promise, starting with the strengths of the family first. After we unpack our own biases and our own issues around the ways that we communicate, how we communicate accidentally only when there are problems with children, how we have systems and structures that don't work for every one of our families, whether it's a language barrier, whether it's a mean secretary act, you know, or whether there's like literally a physical barrier to getting into the school, whether our invitations are at the wrong times, like for their schedules. I have four little kids. Do you think I go to every single event? Am I not an engaged mother? <laughs> it's true. That I can relate to. <laughs> I, I feel like we can relate to to all of this and it, and it's uh, it also is, sort of expands the learning window you know there are folks who think well isn't that what you're supposed to teach them I mean we've heard phrases like that directed from a, a parent to a teacher or maybe from a teacher to a parent isn't that what isn't that your job no no uh, my child's awake I'm awake if I'm awake my child's awake, and maybe I'm even learning when I'm asleep, whole different conversation. But when we're awake, we should be in an opportunity to learn. And it's seizing those learning opportunities, being, being eyes open to those learning opportunities. And yeah, sitting there making a batch of muffins and your kids just come home from school and engaging in a conversation, a, a real conversation about, hey, what did you read today? What did you think about today? How how do you interact today? Um, what song were you singing while you were skipping down the sidewalk? Whatever. Um, and by the way, here's the recipe. Can you read the ingredients for me so I can mix this together? All, all of those are part of the literacy for life. That's exactly right. And in my, um, in my family lab sites in LA and Orange County, um, all the teachers have reported that the invitations for families to come and see what we're doing around literacy. So we invite them to like very kind of fun and just kind of benign literacy experiences. Like let's read this art together. Let's um, draw a map of our neighborhood together. And in the power of the shared crayon and the shared pencil with our caregiver, when we tell stories about what we remember that happened on each block and in each moment, we're telling stories. Then we can take those and we can write those stories. In those invitations for shared family literacy experiences, families now feel that they're collaborators, that it's not an us versus them and inadvertently, accidentally. It's we're all part of the literacy experience of this child. We are all part of the community that is going to build and shape this child's literacy life. Love that. Yeah. Naval, family lab sites. What does a family lab site look like? Oh, it's so much fun, Rick. I can't even (laughs) tell you. (laughs) It looks like you take a space in the school and you invite families to come with like very low stakes. You can bring your sibling, bring any child with you, bring intergenerational, right? You can bring your grandparents, whoever is there with you and come and just learn alongside your kid. And then the teacher or me, as the, as the model, right, um, leads essentially a mini lesson or a learning experience. For example, the last time I showed a picture of my daughter, Eloisa, um, sitting on a bench, hiding underneath the, um, all of the coats that were hung up on the hook. 
And I asked like, what do you see? What do you notice? What do you wonder? And I modeled doing that for that picture. And I told a bunch of stories about Eloisa and how looking at that picture, I had a lot of wonderings. And then I showed another picture of what is outside my window, which is a huge excavation truck digging the, um, digging all of the piping underneath our, our street. They're replacing the piping. And I asked, what do you see? What do you notice? What do you wonder? And the kids turn and talk with their parent or their caregiver. So what do they see? What do they notice? What do they wonder? And they analyzed the heck out of this picture. They, one of them saw someone was peeing. So I took it from my window. So <laughs> a five-year-old noticed that there was a man peeing into the hole. That this, I mean, all kinds of things that they saw that I didn't even notice in this image, right? And then I debrief that. And then I show them images from picture books. And I say, what do you see? What do you notice? What do you wonder? And they do it with their caregiver outside of our kind of circle. So it's a gradual release, just like a mini lesson. And I say, do you see? You're reading. You're reading these pictures together. And then the kids, when they leave, I then debrief with the family. What we do is we don't say the kids can't read. That's decoding, right? That is alphabetic text. You, your kid can read anything in the world. You can read alongside your kid pictures and images and scenes. Did you see how we just did that? And all of those pictures that I used were from picture books that then are gonna be classroom read, read aloud. So there's context for the kids. They were all set in um, LA. So they were like scenes that they were familiar with. Matt De La Pena's book and um, My Puppy Has a Motorcycle and all of these kinds of scenes. That, uh, um, Amanda Gorman's book, kind of like murals that they will have maybe recognized from their neighborhoods. Um, and the parents then as a result, the caregivers then realize, oh, this is what's happening. And then at the end, I showed them um, crackers, a cracker bag. And I said, you can read this. Look at all the questions. What do you see? What do you notice? You wonder that you can ask about this. You can literally read anything with your students. Mm -hmm. And so their eyes are open to that. That's one family. That's a reading experience. That was a kindergarten group. Um, and then, you know, you can continue to kind of have these low stakes invitations that break down barriers for the families to feel like they're participating in the student's literacy experience. And then they kind of have their eyes open to the. <laughs> so, so much fun. You're <laughs> reading. Wait, no, but they didn't see the words. That's okay. They're reading. They're reading the pictures. Um, Charlie, I think you might remember Sarah, my second daughter. We thought she was a genius and she was very bright, but we thought she was a genius because she was reading back books to us, turning the pages all at the right time and everything. She can read. No, she, she'd had the story read to her so many times. She knew what you said when you saw this picture and, and made those connections. So let me read it to you, dad. Okay. And she'd read that whole thing and, and, First, you know, a couple of times, correct. No, that's not the word. It doesn't matter, Dad. You don't need that word. This is the story with the picture. She didn't say that, but that's what I should have learned, yeah. right? And and it's my saying, no, that's not quite the right word there. That was not helping. I was just going to say, I think the other layer to this work that you're talking about is um, really tapping into what we call competencies as part of our kind of curricular progression, but just that building of critical thinking, questioning, communicating, caring humans um, that extends beyond maybe what we would think of as traditional school skills, right? It's, it's the life skills um, because we want like those three questions. What do you notice? What do you wonder? You know, what do you see, et cetera? Like, how is that not the perfect frame for like 95% of what we see on social media, television. 100%. Right? <laughs> 100%. And what, what we're learning and what we know in my research too is that families all have their own different idea of what school looks like. So they might not necessarily think that that is a reading mode either. So we're teaching them also a little bit. It's like a twofold approach, but it, it allows for families then to ask questions because then they feel more comfortable coming to you. And then the next lab site, you have a different way. And then the next lab site, you have a different way, just more invitations. And so when I work with teachers and staff on family engagement, we either, we look at our units and we ask where are the places where we can invite families in? This might be a small ask, or it might be like a 
big invitation and honoring of family and family stories that involves them in questioning and writing, you know, kind of their story or a family project or something more involved. But it can be something really small, be a small ask or a small invitation. So I just like add a column, literally. To Is it always family. ask the family in? Is there, are there times the students go to? I'm thinking here in my community, I have uh, a couple of senior centers and I know <laughs> one grandma uh, stood up and shared, you know, this week we will have our 87th great grandchild. And I was like, get out. Uh, and okay, so there's, there's a whole bunch of those great grandchildren and some of the younger grandchildren, but most of the grandchildren are now married. So these great grandchildren are in school to go and sit with grandma and, and have a conversation with grandma at the senior center, ask a few questions, write a bit of a story or, and, and when I say write, not necessarily word, write. There's lots of, I'm a big fan, multimodal pieces that I, I was in that series that you and Charlie were involved in, but, um, this, this seems like a way to also build community and make connection and break down barriers. Is that that's possible? That's exactly what it is. I, I actually had a principal at one of my sessions last month say, you know, my main takeaway is that we think that family engagement happens in schools, like to events, et cetera. But the truth is if we're elevating families being engaged, period, in any space with their students, we are winning, we're succeeding, we're moving the dial. And I almost think of it as like one of those wheels where you can like turn it. If you're looking at your curriculum and then you turn it and there are all these different asks and opportunities, you can think, which invitation am I gonna give in this place, in this intersection of the school year or of my unit? Is it gonna be a place where I'm gonna ask students to go out and talk to families and ask some literacy experience to happen at home or in a community center, like you said? or of grandma or right? Or am I gonna support them with some invitations in, in the building? But what we do know is that one-off one -off literacy events don't work. And what we do know is that family engagement cannot be a top-down approach. And what we do know is that we have to unpack our own issues around what families have to look like and sound like and feel like before we begin the work. Those are three truths. Hmm. Does that mean, uh, I think it does, answering the question in my head, does, does that mean that in, in these labs, it's also important to have books in the language of the different nationalities in your community mm, and not fuss about, but, but it's English time? Oh, my word. That's still happening? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh my word um, yes <laughs> <laughs> okay so sorry. sometimes it's a nice softball pitch that is just given to you as a floater I understand it did it had no spin on the ball at all you can just oh. hit it and, and I don't mean to be condescending in any way shape or form here and, and there's not even a but at the end of that or, or any with all due respect, none of that. These are challenges of embracing the fact. I, th I think I was reading that you taught one of your family members how to read English. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so bridges to that are embracing this is reading to this is reading to I love the fact that in Alberta, we've moved away from English as a second language to the phrase English as an additional language. And, and if we can embrace that a little bit, that there's great literacy in reading the words of authors from all around the world. Granted, I can't read Nigerian, but the translation is there for me, so read the translation. I, I've done that with Japanese authors, read the translation. But it's also nice to learn a little bit of another language. I mean, you're 100% right. There should never be a time when a student, a child's full repertoire of language skills um, shouldn't be exalted in the classroom. They shouldn't have to check any part of themselves at the door when they enter the classroom. That means if they have another language, there should be 
ample invitations for translanguaging and fluid insertion of any other words that might come to their brains when they're composing or talking to a peer. So in the family lab sites, especially, we encourage families to just talk to each other in whatever language they feel most comfortable in. I toggle very rapidly between Farsi and English when I'm with my family. My dad will bring in Arabic. I understand it. So he can do that. I can't speak back in Arabic, but it's this very fluid. That's the way that we we have all that language. And it offers more opportunities for play. When kids know that this glass of water is water in a bunch of different languages, that is an asset. There should never be a time when I say, we're only saying water here, right? Mm. And in the English language, we are blessed with so many synonyms. The gradients are so wide. In Farsi, it's an extreme language. It's like a joke that we make that, you know, that's why we don't get along with Americans because we're so extreme in our language. <laughs> Explain, please. Politically, you know, we it. either hate or we love. There's nothing in between. Um, right. And so, like, we're kind of extreme with our language, and I would say maybe dramatic. Um, and so, for example, in uh, how can you help me with synonyms for run or movement, like from one place to another? You can say run, you can say walk. What else can we say? Amble. Amble and saunter and gallop. And what else? Sprint. Sprint. You might mosey. You might mosey. You might skip. Giddy up. You might, right. You might tiptoe. <laughs> you might. Okay, there are all these words. And I specifically remember teaching my Amajun Shukla. I said, this word means to walk or to run, something like that. And she said, yeah, I thought this word means that. And I was like, and also. And she kept saying it. She was like, all those words mean? We just say you get from the, like point A to point B. There's just like one word for what we have so many different ways to describe it in English. And so it's a blessing to have all those and to play with words and to kind of, um, Kaveh Akbar, who's a Persian poet, he talks about the delta between the languages that you have and the fun and the innovation and the most interesting writing comes from the delta between languages, the place where you can like play because you know that words are just words that you can know at any time, not a list that somebody told you you need to have under your belt at grade second, right? Grade two or grade three. Schools with high immigration rates. My, my dear friends in grasslands, like in Brooks, family lab sites that allow these families to, to engage in community in an entirely different way. This sounds like a shattering piece that can really open, open the possibilities for these students and their families. One of my um, principals in Chicago just said to me last week, she said, I swear to you, I don't put up the barriers. The families themselves think that they are at a deficit because they don't speak English or the families themselves think that they can't support their child at school. Okay, there's a lot of reasons why we like can unpack why because all of their education experiences may have been different. They may not have done school well. They may have had trauma, right? But I also went to my one of my my four children that started new schools this year because we moved. I went to one of their schools back to school nights and we were all sitting as adults in these teeny tiny chairs and being talked down to in a way that it was like, these are the expectations. Have your kid in the uniform, make sure they go to the bathroom before they come to school. This is how often we're testing them. It was literally a list. And then one fam one guy held his hand up and said, how can we support you, best support you? And the teacher said, just make sure that your kid uses the restroom before they come because that we don't want them to miss the read aloud, which is on a video at the beginning of the class. <laughs> there are so many reasons why I had a panic attack after this. Because the families were condescended down to just, but even in the space, they were standing above us and we were sitting in teeny tiny chairs. And all I could think to myself is half of these families may not have felt like they did school well. So here they are again in a school setting where they're being yelled at already to make sure that their kid looks right, right? It was very concerning. And then I had my three other kids had different experiences. There were beautiful invitations, beautiful invitations to understand the curriculum by engaging in something shared with your kid, by creating something alongside your kid. Those are the kinds of impactful um, 
invitations we want for family. This reminds me of, um, I, I had some of the most like fantastic student teaching experiences way back when. Um, and it's startling to me that this was like over 20 years ago now that I think about it. Um, but the classroom teacher that I was paired with was supporting one of her colleagues who was doing some master's work and her project um, for her master's was called the grandparent project. And what we did was we invited grandparents into our classroom for it was a number of weeks in a row and anyone that didn't have a grandparent that lived in the community we borrowed grandparents from their network of friends and so every student in the room had a grandparent that became their adopted grandparent or was actually their grandparent and then um through the times together we shared stories we sang songs they did like literacy and numeracy tasks and then the very last day, the grandparents were invited to bring in a collection of something. And we set up this little fair in the gym. And the grade three students went around and interviewed them and asked them about their collections. And it was the most adorable, lovely experience um, where, you know, there was one grandpa that came and he really didn't say much and he kind of sang along, but that clearly wasn't his jam. He brought a stamp collection and I have never seen someone so animated about stamps. Uh, but it was just this beautiful shared space um, between generations. And anyways, I just always thought there was such potential there to build community and connection, not just for seniors in a community, but also for kiddos that maybe don't have that generational connection for whatever reason. I love it so much. So one of the parts of my book unpacks um, reimagining the family tree. So that very kind of alienating assignment um, changes into, you know, who is in your collective, who is in your village, who are the people who shaped you my uncle who um, was like a patriarch in my family whose you know house I was raised in um, died in his sleep last spring on the Persian New Year so he died a lovely peaceful death for him which was um, hard for the family but gorgeous for him right um, because he was like totally alive and bike riding and you know uh, the day before just like happy as can be I say all that to say he would not have shown up on my family tree so Uncle Hamid would not have shown up on my family tree, which is just not possible because he is a man who is, he raised my father, he raised me, he's like the main, right? This was like losing my father. My kids, when I was asking them to reimagine their family trees, who would be in your collective, all of them, the first person they said was Ryan, who was my college roommate when I went to University of Michigan, who lived in our backyard in a coach house above our garage with his boyfriend, Ryan. And so Ryan and Ryan co-raised my kids with me when I lived in Chicago. You know, it was Ryan, the original Ryan and Ryan number two. Like they supported <laughs> my kids and they are like uncles to my children. They don't show up on the family tree. They have shaped my kids. And so um, I think it's so awesome that we borrow grandparents because the collective, especially for black and brown and indigenous folks looks very different. And so what kinds of like alienation and biases are we bringing when I say a family tree has to look like this? There might be trauma around not knowing your family. There might be trauma around not having, right? Every you know part of that tree filled out or not having access to the information. But we think it's an innocuous thing. Um, but if you think of that assignment, like that assignment deeply, that originally came from just wanting to have conversations probably about identity and identity building conversations, which we can do in just more thoughtful ways. The relationship the tree. tree. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't even have to be a tree. It could be a garden. That's right. And that's in my book too. Represent it however you want. Okay. So the real, I thought that this wasn't the real reason we brought you to this uh, podcast. Um <laughs> But I know that you're a passionate advocate for diverse texts and ensuring that students um, see themselves in the books that they they read and access. And um, I, you know, it's funny what you don't know. You don't notice. As a white person who lives a very privileged life, um, I functioned for most of my life oblivious that certain people were not being represented in like television in books like it just didn't even dawn on me because of course I saw myself there 
But obviously, that's not the case for a large portion of the population. Um, so I, of course, I follow you on Twitter, and you've got a great little thread going. Um, but what are some of the books that you've read recently? Um, or not so recently, because sometimes we have like classics that we love, that you want to share with folks that you think are just particularly wonderful, and deserve a space or a place in our classroom libraries or in our read aloud collections, PS, which should not be on a video, uh, but actually like read aloud. 100%. Yeah. The read aloud is so much the cornerstone of the elementary classroom. My goodness. I'm going to quote you on that. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm going to start just early. Like I'm going to start with some text titles that I love for K2 band. Okay. Because that's how my brain works. Um, I love books by Ogimora. She wrote Thank You Amo and she wrote Saturday and she's a, she's a collage maker from Rhode Island. Um, and I think there's so much based on community and care and caring for your family and caring for the people around you. They're beautiful. Um, Saturday is just about a little girl who spends Saturday with her mother and everything goes wrong, but guess what? It's okay because she's with her mama. They're beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to talk about culturally nourishing books, books that I talk about or elevate food stories. You have to be really careful not to solely represent a group based on a trope connected to the, you know, connected to their food or their background, because then that can be like the only narrative that white kids then hear and know. Um, I love Watercress by Andrea Wang. It's a beautiful picture book that unpacks her experience um, cultivating watercress with her family on the side of like an Ohio street and her wanting to eat food from the grocery store, but then how those stories led to knowing more about her family and her past. I like to pair that with Fish Cheeks by Amy Tan, another, just a short story. That's an oldie, but a goodie um, about a, a kid feeling, uh, having a crush on a white kid and being embarrassed when he's invited over to eat at her house and eating something that she thought was embarrassing. Liz Kleinrock, who is also an educator who wrote Start Here, Start Now. She mm -hmm. wrote a beautiful piece that's multimodal. It's a video and it's on the Learning for Justice website about food. Um, uh, about specifically about being embarrassed about a lunch, a spicy Korean dish that she takes to school. Um, all of these kind of, if I mention a food story, they are linked on my website in what I call a culturally nourishing roundup. Um, those are some picture books I love. I love My Two Border Towns by David Bowles, illustrated by Erica Mesa about the border between Mexico and the United States. I interviewed them for Weeding Diverse Books and they could not have been more thoughtful. Erica, even embedded in the illustrations, just specific memories of David Bowles, the authors that only he would recognize as personal. Um, and the Mexican side stories are so vibrant and full of life and colorful. And it's about caring for your community and the people on the other side of the border. It's about a little kid who goes back and forth with his dad and takes things to Mexico that they can't get in the United States, that they can't get, you know, that he brings from the United States. Uh, Educator Guide was written by Lorena German. Uh, for that one. It's it's really, really well done. Those are some picture books that I love. Oh, I love um, Aya Khalil, A-Y-A, last name K-H-A-L-I-L. Um, she just wrote a beautiful book about the first night of Eid, E-I-D. It's a Ramadan story, um, but the little girl makes cookies with her grandmother. And in these kinds of books, you always get the recipe. You always get the back matter, which is nonfiction. So it's like a hybrid text where it's a story, but it's also nonfiction. You're learning so much. Kids can then replicate these. You immerse them in these stories and then they can do it with their own families. My, my schools, they usually make recipe books as a class alongside their families. Can I, can I 
pause there before you go on this book that you referred to about the first night of Ramadan mm. where Ramadan is on right now as we're recording this or in about the middle I guess mm. there's there's not a great understanding of, about what Ramadan is in, in Alberta I was blessed to have a number of Muslim students migrate into Grand Prairie and play on my football team and one year Ramadan hit as we were in or uh, it's the wrong word but <laughs> Ramadan occurred during yeah. playoffs for football yeah. and these players informed and, and taught their teammates why they weren't eating and and they were a little concerned like not they the teammates well, well wait we've got a big game we'll be okay mm -hmm. but uh, to have picture books and, and any books that can help inform people as we as I prepare for Easter Sunday and Ramadan is on and the Passover is on to have some understanding that all three of these are rich cultural religious uh, pieces interwoven helps expand understanding break down barriers uh, is is that the kind of thing that 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 book could help with absolutely and so in all of these books I think about the myriad ways we should represent different groups and cultures so that kids in our care learn the truth of the world. So eliminating any of these titles means that you're cutting off a kid's ability to learn about a different culture, right? Know about a different group, which is why it's kind of a tall order because you cannot then just say, here is my black representation here is my one Ramadan representation. Mm. Here is my one Asian representation. Because within all those groups, there are all kinds of nuances, differences, and experiences. I mean, I say this all the time, but like my core group of feminine, like my, my group of friends, girlfriends uh, in New York where I live, they're like a group of mostly Middle Eastern and brown, you know, women, but they're from all over. If you looked at us, you might then think, oh, they're all Middle Eastern, they're all Arab, they're all, oh, no, they're Indian. Some of us are Muslim, some of us are not. I'm Iranian and Arab, right? There's all kinds of, but you'll never know if you don't immerse yourself in the literature and you'll never know if you don't ask questions. And I think don't fear asking questions, don't fear read, read about the back blurb before you then present it to the kids as this is the one narrative. For Ramadan, I also love um, Reem Farooqi's book, Layla's uh, Lunchbox. That's a beautiful one. Um, it tells the story of, you know, why her lunchbox might look different during the month of Ramadan. Mm -hmm. Beautiful book. Um, even my daughter who goes to a Scandinavian school here in Jersey City, uh, she, her, her really awesome, like head of school had books out for the Persian New Year, which is on March 20th. It is what this, it coincides with the spring equinox every year. And so she had a bunch of Noru's books, which I totally commend her for. And then she said, she was putting them all out. She called me over and she said, oh, oh, I think these are all Noru's. I meant to also have Ramadan. Aren't these all just the Iranian Persian New Year, which is totally separate from Ramadan. It's, a, it's once cultural and connected to Iran specifically in the calendar year, as opposed to a, a religious holiday for Muslims, right? And so, yeah, I had to kind of like unpack that with her. And then we had to look up Ramadan titles. It's just that she was asking and wanted to know, right? And there should not be fear or apprehension in that. It should be something that's embraced, just as we talk about trying to better understand the teachings of the elders that we live with and, and learn from. It, it's, don't be afraid. Like, you know, the best way to break down barriers and lines of contempt, etc., and that's a very heavy word, in today's social media world, but still the best way to break those down is expanding our understanding. And that can come through book and multiple levels of literacy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the main thing is like those who teach never cease to learn. And if you have that mentality, you'll never go wrong. You always have to be learning. Um, I love... Um, 
Samira Ahmed's books as we move up in like the older grades. Amira Hamza series, like a fantasy series that she wrote. It's a two book, two book series. Um, it comes from like the Shahnameh oral storytelling legacy. There's lots of undercurrents of that, like kind of think Rick Riordan type like mythology, but like the Shahnameh. And then it's set in Chicago and like a sibling duo. I think they're beautifully done and a lot of fun. My kids really loved them. I love, love, love Jasmine Warga books. Jasmine Warga is a good friend of mine, caveat, but she wrote um, Other Words for Home, a poetic novel about a girl who comes to the United States. It, won, it has won a bunch of awards. Um, it's been on a lot of book banning lists because she has like one line in there about menstruation. Um, and so in that vein, Aida Salazar just, uh, and Yamil Mendez just um, put together, they were the editors for a compilation of um, period stories by uh, brown women writers and they really run the gamut in background and they are gorgeously told and as a mother of a young girl who <laughs> is experiencing all kinds of bodily changes I believe this is a gift to be able to give her something that we you know may have thought taboo or believe is taboo um, or even just as a classroom teacher to give it to your students if you don't feel comfortable unpacking at the moment there are stories about just, it's like, um, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, right? <laughs> it's like, it's a <laughs> part of life. Is that collection available um, yeah. at this point, Naval? Yeah. yeah. What yeah. was it, it called again? It just came out. Um, it's by Aida Salazar. Um, just wrote it or just edited it. She, you know, she wrote A Seed in the Sun, a poetic novel. I loved The Moon Within. Um, which also has been banned for its menstruation um, commentary. Is that is that a national ban or regional or? It's it's regional. It's a lot of different states. Um, it's really kind of appalling. I don't know how else to say it. If I'm not mistaken, the compilation is called "Calling the Moon," and. Yamiel Mendez also um, edited it, and there are authors there like Margarita Engel and Sadia Faruqi and Nikki Grimes. And um, if I was teaching physical education and wellness, human growth and development, some of these short stories, and here's the article from the newspaper about the tennis players at Wimbledon, female tennis players at Wimbledon, saying, if you don't mind, I'd like to wear dark shorts playing tennis. I've seen these and there's like a movement of women showing blood, fake blood to show like statements around a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think also we're missing the cultural piece that it might be, you know, you might want to feel like this is a buttoned up topic, um, but culturally it looks different. It looks different in different groups and communities. Like mm -hmm. I, I think it's just important when we're talking about diversity of texts to really represent the whole of the human experience. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that I'm obsessed with Clint Smith and everything that he writes. Why? He, oh, I just, I just think he's a genius man. <laughs> <laughs> who also writes in different genres, but his poetry is amazing. I love his most recent, it just came out, it's called Above Ground. He writes about parenting and it's called Above Ground because it's full of gratitude for life. It's just, just full of gratitude for every moment. I mean, if you'll let me, I'll end this call reading from that. His poem, Tradition, is... Just, it never leaves me. Happy to let you. Where would you, is Clint Smith for adults to read in their reflection? Is there any avenue for it to fold into upper grades, for example? Absolutely. His, his book, How the Word is Passed, is absolutely appropriate for upper grades. It's, um, it's the story of him kind of going from plantation to plantation and going through the museum tours of these former slavery spaces and thinking about and learning about the history of slavery in the open air. And just think about the um, kind of connections you can make to education, like what kind of power is in the land 
and what kind of power is in, in the history of a land if you're actually there, how we can bring teaching and learning to life by going to the location. Um, he has a poetry compilation called Counting Descent. Excellent, excellent for upper grades. Um, this one is more parenting, but I have used poetry. I've used tradition in the classroom. I've used a lot of these excerpts from the classroom for above ground. Perhaps prepare to share that. I'm looking and Charlie, Charlie and I are looking at our notes and I'm thinking, okay, Naval, we've talked about a number of subjects I did not anticipate talking about. Um, <laughs> I, I am also... But I, I believe we're going to need a part two to speak about the writing process uh, to have a, a second episode with you if you'll uh, if you'll bless us with a second uh, episode in a in a couple months time to talk about the writing process for you and the writing process and and multimodal representations of work. I think that's another we need another whole hour um there for for that uh with your um beautiful mind okay. um, i would love to talk about how it's really like banging your head against the wall and we want to not make it feel that way for kids <laughs> <laughs> i've never been so critical of myself on the page as when you write as when i write because as a newspaper reporter you write articles and then you throw them in the trash can literally and so to look at your writing over and over again after having grown as a thinker and then wanting to toss it slash revise it makes for a book that never comes out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much. So in all of that we've been saying, you know, learning for literacy is not relegated to the walls of the classroom. And when we think about the tasks or the activities or the asks of kids in the classroom, we always want to ask, how is this going to serve kids outside of classroom walls? And I think that this poem by Clint Smith titled Tradition does an amazing job of reminding us how much we learn from the world around us and from the people who shape us and from our caregivers, whoever those people might be. Okay, tradition. On Sundays, we make French toast the way my father made French toast with me. Each of you stand on stools that lift your bodies above the counter, and I roll your pajama sleeves up to your elbows, then ask you if you're ready to start. You both take turns, shouting out everything we need to begin, an incantation of ingredients that have become the lyrics to a song only we know. So much of what I try to do as a father is put back together the puzzle pieces of what my father did for me. What is the way he held me when I first said I was afraid of the dark? How long did he let the silence between us sit when I had done something that had broke his trust? What was the shape of his eyes when he told me he'd never be disappointed if I tried my best? I don't always remember what he said, but I remember how it felt to have him there to have his body brushing against mine when he reached for the bread, to have his hands wrap around my own as they guided me in cracking the eggs, to remember how he extended the measuring spoonful of sugar and cinnamon toward me so that together we could use our fingers to lick it clean. The end products aren't exactly the same. I don't use all the same ingredients. Sometimes I make substitutions. Sometimes I burn the bread. Sometimes he did too. But I try to remind myself that all these years later, I don't remember what the bread tasted like, just that my father had put it on my plate. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you for blessing us with your time today in this conversation so much for us each to think about and uh, really look forward to future visits and to knowing more and more about your work and doing all we can to support um, teachers across Alberta in opening the doors and considering how they can be partners with uh, the families of the children in front of them and young young adults, youth as well. This, this needs to reach all the way up through the high school experience. Mm build a community. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. 
Well, once again, of all, you've proven that you are a gift to our profession. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, we'll totally have you back because anyone that makes emotions leak out of my eyeballs at the end of a podcast is like an automatic return visitor. Uh, that's just, that's just how that goes. Yeah. Thank you. Have a blessed uh, day and, uh, all the best to you and your family moving forward. And we look forward to seeing you again. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.